ladies and gentlemen, if we could kick uh, off, it's going to have a seat. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to welcome Mark Blythe here to LSE. Um, what can I say about Mark? Um, a legend in his own lifetime. Um, okay, he's supposed to laugh at this point. Um, okay, so, um, so for those of you who are not familiar with Mark and his work, um, it is informed by his tough upbringing uh, in, in, in post-industrial Scotland in Dundee. And as everyone knows, the usual avenue out of poverty in Scotland is to become a Premier League football manager. Um, unfortunately, all the footballing genes in his family went to his brother, and Mark instead was forced to uh, do a PhD in political science at Columbia University, and that's where his career started. Uh, he took uh, his first academic position at Johns Hopkins, uh, in Baltimore, and obviously um, uh, we met at Johns Hopkins, uh, as I was a visiting uh, scholar there uh, a decade or so ago, thanks to Mark. And um, he took a position at Brown University, where he's been ever since in 2007, was it? No, 2009. Uh, so Mark's best known for his work on the role of ideas in political economy, and uh, he's written a number of important pieces of work, which he has, he's told me not to mention, but I will mention Great Transformations, his, his first book from 2002, which has uh, been enormously influential. Uh, but uh, here he's uh, going to be uh, giving a talk based around his recent book, Austerity, A Brief History of a, a Dangerous Idea, The History of a Dangerous Idea, sorry, that was the original title. And um, it's a very timely book for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, because he still owes me a fiver. Um, and the, the other reasons... Come on, that... laugh. He's working hard on this. <laughs> for Christ's sake, cut the man some slack. <laughs> it's six o'clock, lighten up. I've been working all day on this. <laughs> you know what the secret of timing is? Comedy. <laughs> Not being in your truth. So, um, this is great timing, because Mark has actually been working on this book uh, uh, for, a, for a good year or two, uh, in some ways for a couple of decades, really. Uh, but of course, now is precisely the moment where the object failure of austerity policies around the Western world is becoming more and more clear, um, and who knows if we might be in for some kind of political movement uh, in, in, in the coming months. And that, if, if that is the case, actually, I think Mark's book will have made a contribution to that. I mean, it's been so far uh, reviewed by uh, a number of uh, colossal figures in the social sciences. I mean, on the back of the book here, which, by the way, is going to be on sale afterwards. Uh, and you can even get Mark to sign it if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, for 15 pounds, uh, thanks to uh, Oxford University Press bringing uh, a few uh, copies along. By the way, I'd like to thank OUP for the support of this event. Um, and uh, it's been, uh, we have uh, blurbs from John Quiggin, Robert Skidelsky, Danny Roderick, and Barry Eichengreen on the back of the book. So that gives you some idea of, of, uh, of how seriously his work is taken. It's been reviewed recently by Larry Summers in the Financial Times, by Martin Wolf, by Paul Krugman in the New Yorker, and I could go on. So this is very important work, and if for no other reason than that, it would be worth listening to. But it's also worth listening to because Mark is possibly the most entertaining uh, speaker in modern-day political science, which you might say is not a difficult Huge tallest midget. But still, it makes it, it uh, worth, worth, worth your while coming here to listen to him tonight. So, uh, take it away, Mark. Thank you very much. So, 
Can I talk here and out here? You can hear me? It's all fine? Yeah? All right. If I actually just walk back and talk like this, you can hear me too, right? So I'm not rooted to the spot. Okay, good. Now, of course, you know, there's no video cable to click in my laptop, so I can't, I don't have a clicky thing, right? Nothing's set up. So I'm basically going to be using the mouse, right? So it's wonderful to be back in Britain and, you know, precisely this level of technological support is why I had 22 years ago. So, you know, let me just put that out there that, you know, it's still crap. Anyway, um, without further disposition, get on with this. Right, why did I write this book? Um, how many of you are PhD students or master students? Right, here's my only useful bit of advice to you. What should you write about? You should write about something that pisses you off. Because when you get up in the morning, it still pisses you off. And that keeps you going through the day. And you actually want to sit down and write about things rather than just do something because it's like techy or easy or you'll get through your coursework with it or whatever it happens to be. Now, why did I want to write about this? I want to, and then you'll get this in the preface. The preface of any book I write is usually the best bit. And the reason for that is you get to the end of the story, you know what you finally said. And then you can go back and write it in miniature. So the, the short version of the story goes like this. I grew up on this thing called the welfare state. My mother died when I was very young and I was uh, brought up by my grandmother and we had very little money. Uh, I actually did go to school with holes in my shoes, that's not a joke. And, uh, you know, life was austere in the original sense of the word. Now, back then schools worked and there were actual ladders of social mobility you could climb. University was free on the grounds that if I was smart I'd be paying much higher taxes later on, so basically it's a gift that pays for itself. So there was a particular environment I grew up in where these institutions were very important to me. And one sense or another, if you look at me now, I'm the greatest example of intergenerational social mobility you'll ever lay eyes on. From Dundee on the welfare state to an Ivy League professorship, there's not too many people get to do that in one lifetime. Now, what pisses me off is the fact that the institutions have made that possible are things that are being blamed for all this debt. That's the thing we have to cut. Now, there's something odd about that, because I thought what was behind the debt was a giant financial crisis, where the assets and incomes of people who made off for the past 30 years of most of the assets and incomes got reinsured by the state. And it got dumped on the public balance sheet. And then suddenly we're told, look at all that debt. We've been spending like drunken sailors. We need to take care of that. Well, first of all, who the is we? <laughs> and why are we paying for the mistakes of others? Because what you have here is a put option. You've taken the option from basically from the public balance, the private balance you put on the public, and then you basically put the right to pay for the obligation down on the lower bottom end of the income distribution. The problem is they don't have any money. It doesn't work for the simple reason that there's no cash there. And if you cut their services and you make the next me less and less possible, you do something very serious to the structure of liberal capitalism. You delegitimate it. And if you think you can run permanent surpluses in Northern Europe at the cost of permanent deficits in the South, if you think you can sustain 25% unemployment to save a piece of paper, you're in for a hell of a shock. Now, let's talk about Europe. Europe, as you can see, is not in great fiscal health. You should always look at the net debt to GDP ratio rather than the gross. For some following reason. Number one, if, if you really just look at the gross, it means that nobody has any income. So I didn't need to pay taxes this year, and in the United States I did, and there was quite a lot of it. And states actually do have assets and things like that. So, you know, even on a net basis, though, there's quite a lot of debt out there, and a hell of a lot of it has grown up since the financial crisis. As uh, I can tell you, in the United States, for example, net debt to GDP was 61% back in 2006. 
And strangely, I don't remember too many congressmen jumping up and down screaming about the awful debt when it was at that level. And what actually brought it to that level is a very interesting little story. If you go back to 2000, the United States had two balanced budgets. And the number one fear of financial markets in 2000, get this, there wouldn't be enough federal debt. They were actually worried about running out of debt. Portfolio managers were freaking out. What are you going to do? There's no T-bills. What does that do to mortgage markets, right? So suddenly we don't have enough debt. Then we can cure that. First of all, you have 9-11, and then you get the Greenspan put. So you do asset protection for anybody. So basically what you're telling me is, the minute the economy pumps, you're going to cut interest rates. I get free money to buy up assets and then bid up the prices. But don't worry, there's no such thing as asset bubbles, right? Because we live in the great moderation. So you do the green plan put, and then you say, well, you know, we're kind of bored in the United States. Let's, let's have a couple of wars, shall we? So we'll have two wars of choice, and we'll spank hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, and we won't raise any taxes. Now, you see, debt to GDP is just starts to go up. And then uh, we'll have a couple of down to tax cuts. You know, why not? Let's just have some more money. We don't actually have much of it. And then you'll get to 61%. And then basically you can try and bail out your entire banking sector and act as the global counterparty of last resort and put $13 trillion of people's money at risk to save the assets of the people who have all the assets. And suddenly you end up with 90% debt to GDP. Mr. Roboff tells us we're all going to die because there's a huge negative convection that happens at that point. And it turns out it's actually not true, but we'll put that to one side. So anyway, we're not in good shape. Now, how did we get into this mess? Little Laurel and Hardy picture there for anybody who's interested. For everybody under the age of 40, they were very famous comedians by the time the whole world was in black and white, right? There was, there was no colour. There was only black and white at some point. And then we had the EU and they invented colour. That's what that should be. <laughs> now, there's two stories about how this all gets out of the box. So let me give you the first one. The first one is the one that political scientists tend to like. And it's the story that goes like this. It's about ECB credibility leading to overborrowing. And the important part here, if you haven't looked at the top, is this is the 10-year bond rates on um, European bonds going into the euro. And you see there's a huge spread, then it's all the same, and then there's another spread. Now, why is this interesting? Because back in the day, the fact that you paid 25, got paid 25% for holding the Greek tenure was actually reflective of the risk in the pond, right? They might default. They haven't run a budget surplus in 50 years. They don't make anything, and they take turns stealing the state. You want to lend them money? That's what it costs, right? The Italians are running around 15%, the French around 12%. But this thing called the euro is going to come in, and what that means is everybody's suddenly German. Because you're going to have this wonderful new thing called the ECB, and the ECB is going to take inflation off the table. Because you will not be able to inflate your way out of trouble, you will not be able to devalue your currency because you won't have one. And essentially what you're going to do is you're going to hand over your printing presses to Frankfurt, and they're going to stop your running inflationary cycles of devaluations. And in that case, when you get into trouble, your only other alternatives are to default, which you don't want to do or to behave properly, and that means structural reform and convergence and all that good stuff, right? So that's the theory behind it, at least. And what you can see is the market premium reflecting that as you get closer and closer into the story. And uh, yeah, that's one version of the story. Now, what happens, of course, is all the bond yields narrow, and then they become very spread at the bottom. Now, why are they very spread once you get to the left hand, the right hand side of them? Well, here's a story. This story looks at long-term current accounting balances. Now, what has this got to do with all the bond yields? Well, as those bond yields are going down, what's happening is banks are basically buying lots and lots of periphery debt because the spread's narrowing. And as the spread's narrowing, they're swapping out the German debt for Greek debt, what they're actually ending up doing is flooding local funding markets for Greek and other banks. 
That means that interest rates locally drop below the policy rate and everybody ends up with bags of free money. And with those bags of free money, you start to buy things. Now, if you've got a choice between buying a car made in Italy, unless it's a Ferrari, and a car made in Germany, which one are you going to buy? So what do you start to see? You start to see everybody running deficits against Germany because they make the stuff that everybody likes. And what's more insidious is it's their savings that are going from the Sparkasse into the close banking and then from there into the circuits of the south, allowing southern consumption to balloon. This is, of course, driven by lax public spending. And if you look at this annual growth of government expenditure, they're spending like drunken sailors. The Irish, my God, 10% a year increases. What on earth do they think they were doing? Look who it is, it's our friend, the pigs. It's Ireland, Spain, Greece, and Portugal, and the Netherlands, which is kind of weird. But nonetheless, they're spending too much. Where is all this money coming from, right? Well, this made possible the transfer of Germany's credit into the whole of Europe. You end up with Deutsche Bank and Baralis. As I said, inflation and devaluation risk was off the table. And then you have these rules, the master rules, credible rules against sovereignness behavior and having low debts and deficits and all the rest of it. And the result of this, of course, is that yield convergence, but also, crucially, countries are overborrowing. And you know they're overborrowing because look at competitiveness. So this is unit labor cost change. And again, look who's there. Ireland, Spain, Italy, Greece, Cyprus, and Malta will put in their own special category. Portugal. Look at that, they've been, they're giving themselves these huge wage increases. Well, where are they getting the money from? They must be borrowing because they're simply not getting it through structural reform or improvements. But really, what's doing all this is this is the net international investment position, is they're borrowing it. So, look, German surpluses and Dutch surpluses are basically translating into Spanish and Portuguese deficits. That's what they're doing, they're borrowing all that money. Terrible. But the take home is well, the southern countries have borrowed too much. Really? Look at that diagram. Who's got all the debt? Germany, England, France. It's not the periphery. Who's holding the bag? The other countries. Because there's a little dirty secret going on. You can't have overborrowing without overlending. Oh, look at that sign. City Bank slogan from 2003 to 2006. <coughs> Live richly. Don't be rich. Don't save your shit up and buy yourself something nice. Just live richly. So you have surplus savings coming in the north, going into banking circuits that can't use them. They then got collateralized into different banks in different countries. They were all effectively borrowing a foreign currency because none of them actually controlled the damn thing they're using for investment. The euro. So let's run that story again. The greatest moral hazard trade in human history. What actually happened was, if I was a French bank, I would be sitting around looking at that graph saying, how am I going to make money off this? So I've got declining yields. It's nice to hold 25%, particularly because eventually the Greeks, when they had their own currency, if the banks blew up, they probably would bail out their banks. So you still have insurance on the contract in one shape or form. But the euro is going to take that away, so I'm not going to make money on a declining spread. Well, the only way you can do that is if you pump up the volume. So what you begin to do is you take the balance sheet of your banks, you get rid of your German debt, your Dutch debt, and you take on as much periphery debt as you possibly can, and you start to run leverage ratios of 20, 30, 40 to 1. You massively increase the asset footprint of your banks, because what you're doing is called a volume convergence trade. And as you do that, you know there's a prisoner of dilemma, because there's only a limited amount of debt. There's only so much good stuff to be had, and the more the other banks try and play this game, the more that they're going to buy it, the less there is for you. So you pump up the volume and pump up the leverage even more. And then you end up with an enormous banking system 
three times the size of the Americans and twice as levered, filled with periphery sovereign debt. What do you think's going to happen? Core banks get stuffed with periphery debts going bad as a result of overlending. Foreign banks can validate claims on Greece, Ireland, Italy, Spain, Portugal. This is the last reliable figures we have. It's from a BIS report, the Oliver Wyman report, and other stuff that came out from the pants. Nobody believes them. So basically, what have you got? You've got French banks that are over 30% of GDP in periphery debt stuck in the balance sheet. Now, why do you not let Greece out? Because if you let Greece out, you have to sell on Greece to cover your losses which means you want to get ahead of it, so you want to sell Portugal. But if you sell Portugal and Greece, what are you going to have to do? You have to cover your losses, so what do you do? You sell on Ireland. Suddenly you've sold 11% GDP, and then you have to do what? You have to buy the bullet, you have to sell on Spain. You can't sell on Spain to cover your portfolio losses because it's too big and there's not enough buyers in the market that could absorb that volume hitting it at once. So above all, to avoid a bank run around the bond market when you've got that much trash on your balance sheet and you're super levered, what do you do? That's Eurozone GDP, that's bank assets. They don't have a printing press. If you're not afraid, you should be. That's what this is really all about. When is that, when is that last slide? That was uh, 2012 figures. This is the too big to fail USA. You can see their top six bank assets relative to GDP is about 61%. At least the Brits have their own currency. There's British GDP, there's your bank asset footprint. That's bothersome. But you do have your own currency, and you have a credible central bank, and your yields are quite low. France has a problem. Credit agricole is bigger than the French state, and it doesn't have a printing press. It's a farmer's bank that became a derivatives trading desk with a giant internal hedge fund. Deutsche Bank did the same, but they hired angles to run it for them. But nonetheless, when you look at total bank assets relative to GDP, you have a printing press, you have one hell of a problem because if you're worried that if Greece gets out, you have to sell Portugal and you sell Ireland and then it goes to Spain, you know that you're going to end up blowing up about 30% of your GDP in your banks. Which is why we have austerity policies. It's all about stopping a bank run around the bond market, but there's just four problems with this. You can't solve a banking problem with budget cuts. You can cut Greek public spending to Neolithic levels, and we have. It won't do a damn thing for stock gen's balance sheet. You can't run a gold standard of democracy. We found that out in the 1930s. Well, you can try, and we've been doing it, because essentially it is a hard money regime with the same type of constraints. You can't solve a solvency problem with liquidity instrument, but you can keep adding LTROs and ELAs and everything else and just kick that can down the road and squeeze, add liquidity and pray, which is pretty much what the ECB's been doing. Because ultimately it's not really a central bank, it's a currency board with an inflation target that happens to have a printing press. It has, doesn't have either the constitutional or architectural infrastructure to do the type of asset swap plus QE that the Feds can do. And that's why they're stuck. Draghi would love to do it. He'd love to reach in and take those bonds off and bury them in the ECB's balance sheet, add liquidity, delever the banking system, let them recapitalize, get lending with them. Just what the Americans have done. There's a problem. You can't do it. Why can't you do it? Number one, Germany won't let you. Why won't Germany let you? Because Germany's not big enough to take the hit. It's just not big enough to do it. Secondly, at the end of the very fundamental difference between the Fed and the, and the ECB, the Fed has a credible intergenerational capacity to tax. It all goes back to when you have a fiat money system, it's all about having citizens. Because three, either three generations down the line, you can still credibly pay back your bond. At the end of the day, Mr. Draghi has volunteers. 
Do you see a future British government handing over the British taxpayer to bail out some French banks gone bad? I don't. And the final one, of course, is you can't all cut up once and expect to grow. Somebody needs to be generating income from which to save. Otherwise, all you do is crater the economy in the same constant stock of debt gets bigger rather than smaller. And surprise, surprise, in doing so, every single economy that's undergone an austerity program since 2010 now has more debt rather than less. Utterly predictable. Was predicted. Why the hell, then, are we still doing it? Two rival stories. John Locke. All the way back to the beginning, folks. Read the fifth chapter of John Locke's Second Treaties. It's where he invents property. And he makes a couple of telling admissions. He basically admits that markets generate enormous inequalities. And he tries to solve this by talking about how there's so much land available, there's plenty for everyone and all that. But really, at the end of the day, he knows that they generate very unequal rewards. And that's why you need the state, and you have to have the compact of the Commonweal for property rights and all the rest of it. Well, why do you have to do this? Well, the problem is you're rebelling against the state. Remember, the whole right to rebel is about the fact that any state that's big enough to protect your property is probably powerful enough to take your property from you, hence the American Second Amendment, for example, right? So right at the beginning of liberalism, <coughs> you know that you need states. After all, what was the whole point of the English Revolution? What was the whole point of getting control of the state? So you can make markets, so you can run the state and actually implement markets. They don't spring out of the ground. They're not given by God. That's the point of the whole thing. But when you do that, even if you run the state, you're worried that the state's going to come and take the property away from you. And there's a third problem. You need to pay for it. Any state that's big enough to do that job effectively is going to be expensive. And you really don't like paying taxes. So you have a dilemma. Who begins to think this through? The twin giants of the Scottish Enlightenment, David Hume and Adam Smith. David Hume's essays on interest and on money identified as very, very clearly, and also on debt itself and national debt. And here's the problem. You don't want to pay taxes. You need the state, but at the same time you fear the state. So how are you going to pay for this thing? And you don't want to pay taxes, so what are you going to do? Well, there's this thing called debt. It's kind of awesome, right? Because it's a bit of a free option if you think about it, because I'm going to give you money, the state, and you're going to get it all back to me whole 10 years from now, and you're going to pay interest for the privilege. This is brilliant. So I need the state. I give it the money. It gives me the money back. I make a profit off this. This is fabulous. What could possibly be better? Except, and this is the first argument you always hear, you're going to have to pay an interest rate higher than what you would get in the market. And if you can do that, why would you invest in the market? So you're going to crowd out the market for investment. And as you do that, as investment falls, the economy shrinks. And as the economy shrinks, it's unable to service the debt. Faced with this constraint, what do you do? You issue more debt. And you have more debt upon more debt, and eventually you have to sell it to foreigners. And those foreigners end up owning the country. If you live in the United States as I do, I think half the country thinks China already owns three quarters of the federal debt. It's not true, but it's a nice scary story. Adam Smith has a slightly different twist on this. Smith recognises the importance of parsimony. This is how raw parsimony is hard to have to save, and that creates investment. It doesn't equalize. S causes I directly. There's no liquidity traps in the Smithian world. So you need the state, though. Now, why do you need the state? Smith is wonderfully explicit about this. Two favorite quotes from Smith. For every rich man, there must be 500 poor. And were it not for the firm hand of the civil magistrate, he would forever be regarded as jealousy, for jealousy. Unable to sleep, his property would be forever in jeopardy. Number two, 
civil government, insofar as it is instituted, is instituted for the protection of the rich against the poor, or those who have property against those who have none. Not Karl Marx, Adam Smith, <laughs> Wealth of Nations, back end of book two, go check it out, I'm not giving this shit up, right? <laughs> now, how do you then solve this problem? Because he's been talking to David Hume, and David Hume's very nervous about debt. Well, he's like, there's another problem, what's that? Well, we could solve it with taxation, but here's the thing. Taxes should be progressive. Really? Why? Well, those are the most skin in the game, get the most protection, so therefore they should pay the most taxes. That's very progressive of you, Adam. Yes, I just figured something out, though. Well, that means that me and my mates pay all the taxes, so we're not having any of that bollocks. <laughs> so he immediately backs off of progressive taxation and goes for, guess what, Paul Ryan's favourite thing, a national consumption tax. Really, he argues exactly what the Republicans are arguing today, a national consumption tax. But then, unlike the Republicans, he's honest enough to admit the following, I'll never raise enough money. Because when you've got one rich guy, you've got 500 poor, and they just don't consume enough, so how are you going to get out of this problem? Well, you can't. So you're kind of stuck with debt. And the real problem with debt is the perversion of the parsimonious instinct. It stops us becoming hardwired merchants. It makes us lazy, slothful. He uses the word effeminate. It undermines the martial spirit that's necessary for the capitalist impulse. So we drown in debt, and worse, we become slightly effeminate in the process. <laughs> Now, Smith and Hume both worried about the debt a lot and both made a very, very strong prediction that within a few short years, Britain was on the road to ruin. We're going to accumulate this huge debt and they would be owned by foreigners, sliced and diced, and then they would die. And by 1815, British national debt went to 264% GDP. What happened next? Britain went on to dominate one-third of the world for the next 100 years. By 1867, debt was in single figures. And it wasn't because of austerity, it was because of growth. Or imperialism. Or both. <laughs> but the collapse didn't come. The great end didn't happen. And every time there's been a giant pile of debt, those same arguments about crowding out, about how foreigners will own us, about how the entire economy will be cratering because of this crushing burden of debt, have proven to be utter bollocks. Every time we have a huge pile of debt, we grow and pay it off. That's what happens, without exception. The result of this, however, is a neuralgia, which I like to call the can't live with it, can't live without it, don't want to pay for the problem of the state and liberal thought. Or alternatively, liberalism's neuralgia and the aspirin of austerity. Whenever we accumulate some debt, we reach for the bottle, we guzzle it down, and it doesn't do anything for our headache or hangover whatsoever. During the 19th century, this begins to create two sides of rival stories. On the left, we have David Ricardo, through which David Ricardo's work, you go down a very hardcore route, which leads us toward to uh, the Austrian school and also modern Austrians. On the other side, you have a kind of let's accept the need for the state and think about more creatively how to pay for it, which begins with John Stuart Mill, goes through Hobson and ends up with Keynes, and it splits down these two tracks. And then came the Great Depression. My favourite picture, there was no way like the American way everyone lined up to you know, hasn't changed much in many parts of the country. And the first one was the austerian response, because the people in charge were people like Joseph Schumpeter, and yes, he actually looked like that. You'd <laughs> be very afraid. And Schumpeter came over from Austria and basically ended up in the chair at Harvard University. Nice trick if you could pull it, you know, but ends up coming over there. 
And West Mitchell and other economists at that time had developed what they call modern business cycle theory. And the basic idea behind it was very similar to what, sort of what's become Laramie Austinism, which is also a real, some real business cycle theory from Robert Barrow as well, actually, in another form. Essentially, you don't get to see the economy. It's too big, it's too complex. And if you try to intervene, it will always end up producing kind of unintended consequences. So you shouldn't do that. And basically what happens is technological change and other things come along, cycles, commodities, different things, sunspots, whatever. And things go up and things go down and you should just let it happen. As Andrew Mellon, Treasury Secretary, under Hoover put it, we should simply let the system go bust. Rottenness will be purged from the system. All the bad will be flushed away and competent people will come along and pick up the pieces and start again. There was just one problem. All the competent people seemed to have gone on indefinitely paid leave because they sat around at the bottom of the depression for 14 years and it simply didn't restart. But the story of austerity properly really begins here because it's not until you have states that are big enough to cut, which doesn't happen until you come out of World War I, that you have a story about if you binge and purge, you'll restart the system and you'll go. The British, of course, have a much more refined response to this called the Treasury View, which basically takes the view that we've done well for the past 100 years with a, with a combination of outward-oriented finance and free trade, and basically anything the government does will, will crowd out investment, so it's pulling straight from the old Enlightenment script. And then there's an interesting battle that happened in the 1920s over the memorandum and some proposals for unemployment, which was the Treasury's reply, something called the Treasury View, to a piece that Henderson and Keynes wrote about Lloyd George's proposals for unemployment. And it makes two new arguments, which are actually old arguments dressed up again. The first one is the notion of Ricardian equivalence pops up here, that any taxes that are raised now or any tax cuts that are done now or any spending that is done now must be paid by compensations in the future. It's zero sum against itself. It doesn't alter the GDP truck in any way. And those of you who remember the Obama stimulus, remember one of the critiques of the stimulus was there was a lack of suitable public works, as they said in 2008, shovel-ready projects. Well, that's all there at 1926 exactly the same arguments. Now, when you have the same arguments repeated for 300 years without any actual modification and scant, if any, disconfirming confirming data, you might think you might want to get a little bit sceptical about this. But it's not logic that changes arguments. Sadly, it's usually violence. Because story number two is austerity doesn't work. And what turbocharges this is the simultaneous contraction of the five largest economies in the world through the 1920s and the 1930s. America, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Japan simultaneously contract to try and get on back on the gold standard, and then when they fall off the gold standard, they keep cutting. The result, Britain in 1933 has 170% debt to GDP, sorry, 1931. By 1933, it was 190 despite the cuts. We got off mildly. In Germany, this led directly to the rise of the fascists when they were supposedly dead. All the money that the Americans had been pumping in the economy over the prior five years left the country when it was what's called a seniority swap in the young plan, which gave seniority war credits over private credits, thereby freaking out the American investment community and they pulled out their cash. In Japan, it was even worse. One of the most surprising things about the book was actually going to the Japanese financial press of the 1920s because I can read Japanese. No, that's not true. Someone else can, and I found a nice paper on it. But essentially, all these wonderful headlines in the Japanese press, like, France has gone back on gold. We should shame ourselves, and all this sort of stuff. So there's this huge crusade to get back on gold. Why? Because they're an export-dependent economy. They want to get a price advantage. They want to do huge internal devaluation. They turbocharge austerity. They voluntarily go through the show of depression. 
never heard of it, have you? 50% of nominal income destroyed in two years. And then they did it again. By 1929, the only part of the budget left was the military budget, and they cut that by 50% in real terms. By 1931, the Japanese military had had enough. They assassinated the Prime Minister. Then they assassinated another one. Then they took out a finance minister. Then they took out another one. Then they put their own guy in charge of finance. His name is Takahashi Koryeko. He is the muse for Abenomics. It all comes back. You get genocidal fascism. <laughs> the result of all this is, and I showed the little posters there, you know, the whole thing about the, the Hitler stuff is like, it was the bourgeoisie who was voting for him. It's like, actually, no, it was also miners and steel workers and other people being pissed off for 10 years of austerity. But the result of all this is, a new story. The fallacies of composition and non-scalability in labour money markets mean you can't price yourself into a job. The states, it turns out, are not families. The debt markets for states are nothing like household budgets. Their investment expectations are social and short-term, not long and wrong, long and rational. There's no such thing as retarding equivalence in the heads of ordinary people. And as I said, the most central message of the general theory was consumption, to repeat the obvious, in the sole end of economic activity, says law on the supply side goes into the trash, as you get a political redistribution of power. Because when you make consumption the most important thing rather than investment, then the joint consumption decisions of millions of average Joes become determinant of the capitalist tail. The dog wags the tail, the tail no longer wags the dog. That's why the Keynesian era was about politics as well as economics. The lessons learned were hard ones. The first one is democracy is asset insurance for the rich. The second one is redistribution and debt is reinsurance for democracy. And the third one is that austerity is anorexia for the economy. We've spent the past 30 years forgetting those lessons. Oops, sorry about that. Ow, bollocks, go away. Hate Microsoft. Anyway. After the war, you think that these ideas were dead, but they're not. They pop up in an unusual place, but it's actually quite expected. It's in Germany. What you've got there on the left is Walter Eucken. Walter Eucken was one of the Freiburg liberals. Now, basically, liberalism had a hard time in Germany overall, because in 1873, they had what's called the Founders' Crisis, when they had a giant stock market bubble and it blew up. This was at a very inopportune time, because the people running what was becoming the German state at that point, Bismarck and his mates, were rather relying on them to produce a lot of investment so they could do catch-up policies with the Brits. Unfortunately, they sparked it all in a stock market bubble, so they basically clamped down on liberalism and tried a whole new model of capitalism based upon forced investment, restrained consumption, and export-led growth through giant firms with cross-shareholdings. Any of you done the variety of capitalism literature? It starts in the 1870s. And these firms that they produced, think Siemens, was founded in 1856. Daimler, 1879. BMV, or the company that became BMV, is founded in the 1890s. These these firms have survived two wars, partition, reunification. This is a very robust model. But it's also a late development model that basically survives because it lives and dies by export. That is, your demand is generated elsewhere. And if your demand is generated elsewhere, you cannot ever run a Keynesian policy. It literally makes no sense to you. Because all you're going to do is produce higher wages. And those higher wages are going to filter in your export prices and your elasticities on your exports are only going to take up so much slack. 
So this whole Keynesian thing makes no sense to you. What would you have instead? Well, what you need, according to the Orwell Liberals, is an economic constitution. That is to say, a set of rules. And those rules will be obeyed because they are the things that inform competition. And you competition over products and quality between firms, and that's great because then you become better and then you compete in third country markets. So everybody wins. And the export continues to go. And you focus not upon consumption, but on competition. And in order to make this work, you don't need a big treasury pumping demand around the economy. You need a big ass central bank making sure that people don't have inflationary wage increases. Does that sound at all familiar to something? Like this? The architecture of Europe is ordo-liberal. Think about the Maastricht criteria. Lots of rules to stop states doing things. No rules to stop private actors doing anything. The commission itself is very, very powerful. It's a focus on competition, structural reform, rules. The parliament doesn't do deadly squat, apart from draw wages and bugger off home on the weekend. Sound money is the most important thing. Output variations are not something that you try to manage. Rules are everything. Political discretion is always and everywhere a bad thing. Competitiveness is everything. Complementarity is something we'll worry about later. And then you have fiscal institutions, obviously discussion to build them eventually. What do you have? You have, think about the, um, the, 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 the new deficit criteria. Now, when there's no amounts in the debt rate, you have a procedure now where you're allowed to have a 3% deficit, but you can have a 6% surplus. Well, given that they're symmetric, what the hell is that all about? And if you really are serious about this, this is how you're going to govern this whole economic space. You're actually expecting Greece to become a bit more like Germany. You're expecting countries that have nothing to export apart from things that they compete with each other in, like olive oil, to become super competitive with olive oil. I mean, there's a reason the Germans make the MWs. They're really good at it. We can't all make BMWs. And even if we could, who the hell's going to buy them? The entirety of Europe can't run an export surplus against itself. This is economic nonsense. So why did we notice that? I'll go back to the banking story. When you've got capital flows going from north to south through those banking circuits, and everybody's able to buy BMWs despite actually not increasing productivity or doing anything sensible, there's a giant credit boom and everybody's happy and they all think it's great. Ben Bernanke writes about the great moderation, how central bank policies have smoothed out all this volatility. And the whole thing goes bang. And when the whole thing goes bang, suddenly you notice the truth. What these institutions have been doing and what the capital flows have been doing are papering over the cracks of patently unsustainable models. Tying them together with a monetary union that is absolutely torturous once the capital flows stop. Because you are relying personally on running a permanent surplus in the north and a permanent deficit in the south because you're not willing to do the fiscal transfers to make it work. And if I was German, I wouldn't be willing to do fiscal transfers because you're going to end up paying. Rule number one in financial crises, the creditor always pays eventually. One way or another. And they know that. So their solution instead is if you can't inflate and you cannot devalue and you're not going to allow a default, you're going to deflate. You're going to squeeze, add liquidity and pray. And that's what they've been doing in the Eurozone. Now, how does this tie back into the story about ideas? Go back to Italy in 1945 and you find a guy called Luigi Analdi. During the 1930s, he was the chief correspondent for the Economist magazine about Italy and everything that was going on there. 
And he was an auto liberal. He was chums with all the guys in Freiburg. He liked all these ideas about rules over discretion and an economic constitution. And frankly, if I was a member of the Italian elite, I wouldn't trust my state as far as I could throw it either. If you go out to the Council of Deputies and cross the road, on the left-hand side you will find a restaurant. The restaurant where all the public politicians go for lunch. It's called the privileged ones. It's still there today. And with a hint of irony, they go out, they have lunch there, and then come back. So I wouldn't trust my state either. And an Ali certainly didn't. And he founded uh, Milan, the Bocconi School. And the Bocconi School is basically Virginia public finance done in Italy. That basically states are always in everywhere rent seekers, that it's always diversion or that there's no net way that the economy can be improved by staying on the bench. It's basically Jim Cannon stuff, right? So why is he doing all this sort of stuff? Well, he's doing it because he's a trusted state. He's also a huge fan of Europe because he sees it as being a disciplinary device to stop national legislators spending money that they don't have. So an interesting thing begins to happen. Bocconi and the, the economics Bocconi produces intensely micro and is therefore intensely mathematical. Long before you get the shift towards hyper-mathematical, the, hyper, the much more mathematized version of economics that you begin to get in the West in the 1980s when Keynesianism falls out of favor. So what happens is by the 1970s, Bocconi grads who are hardwired to see the state everywhere as a rent-seeking pathology are the only people who have been mathematically trained enough to compete with the Americans. Because the Cambridge capital controversy basically shoves the Brits into second position because they lose. And the neoclassical revolution technifies it beyond the, the ken of most mortals. So master students and others from the Coney begin to pop up in American PhD programs. And they begin to get their PhDs there. And they begin to do things like, hang on a minute, it's Alan. Let's bring back the crisis for a second. My favourite Alan Greenspan quote of the whole period is not the mea culpa about how to form my ideology. It's the one he did in the FT. With few notable exceptions, financial markets have been stable and produced good returns. <laughs> With few notable exceptions, there has been world peace since the year dot. <laughs> but anyway, the crisis came along. So what has Bocconi got to do with all this? Well, here's the real thing. The current head of the Arbor Economics Department is a guy called Alberto Alcina. And he has an idea called expansionary fiscal consolidation that cuts directly to growth through this effect on confidence. Now, we strip away all the math and the econometrics. The story goes like this. And I'm not making this up. This is the old story. I lie awake at night worrying about the national debt. I do, all the time. Everybody does. If you don't, you're not paying attention. So basically, you know, I know the economy is falling around my ears. I don't have a job next Tuesday. My wife's already been made unemployed. But I worry about the national debt. <laughs> so I was absolutely overjoyed to hear that the government has credibly committed to a massive cut in government public expenditure. Because what that signals is 10 years out, using my Ricardian equivalence, rational expectations, the structure of the economy bolted into my head, the value of the coefficients governing variables in the economy, I've now recalculated my lifetime budget. And I know that I have more money than I should have today because of the credibility of the cut that will happen tomorrow. Consequently, I go out to Ikea, buy a couch, and cure the recession. <laughs> 
I'm not doing this justice to the theory. That's actually what it says. Now, this is painted nonsense, so you can dress it up in hyper-technical concepts such as debt and related to time and consistency problems, and those of credibility and income shock, spending and future taxes. And then you can take usually five cases and start to tell a story of how Ireland and Sweden and Canada cut their debt and then grew. The problem is not just the incoherence of the story. They get the story of these cases backwards. It's not that cuts led to growth. It's that growth led to cuts. Canada's the best example of this. Canada. You may have noticed, there's a small country that sits next to the United States. No offence to Canadians, but it's true. And the American economy, back in the day, in the 70s, was about 11 times the size of the American, of the, um, the American economy, 11 times the size of the Canadian one. So Canada has a devaluation of the loonie between 1986, 1976 and 1986, of 40% normal, 30% real. Beginning in 1982, the American economy goes through an absolute tear of growth the real exchange rate goes up at the same time as the Canadian one has just collapsed. Canada is a commodity exporter. The Americans can't buy enough of it. They make an absolute fortune. And quite rightly, they then turn around and pay back some debt. When the Wall Street Journal points out that they've got a lot of debt and they might have a problem, well, they had growth, they had money, they paid back debt. There's a guy who made that famous once. He said, the boom, not the slump, is the right time for austerity. And if you go through all of these cases, you will find that that is exactly the story that happens in every goddamn case. There is no cases of austerity leading to growth. Expansion of fiscal consolidation is a fantasy. Unfortunately, it's a very damaging one. Because in Palestine, his Ecofin brief in 2009 was written right into the ECBJ 2010 report. Chapter, verse, concept, quote, the whole lot. Ricardian consumers will be buoyed by confidence increasing budgets as we slash public spending. This became the rationale and mantra and the structure of periphery bailouts that we would have cuts in our tax increases. And the result of this has been what I call the greatest gain switch in human history. Because at the end of the day, regardless of the form it took, what drove up there was the collapse of revenues and receipts because of the financial crisis on an already leveraged financial system, which cannot be fixed by the institutional architecture of auto-liberalism. So you've got a problem. You'll continue to see these out liquidity and prey, and the debt continues to mount. But it's not the debt that was generated by the people who didn't have the income. It was private sector debt that became repressed, it public sector debt. And that's a bait and switch if you want the other members of the public to pay it. The only thing is they don't have any money. And when everybody in a common currency tries to cut at once, the numerator gets bigger as the denominator shrinks. And every country has tried this, now there's more debt rather than less. So I find myself in a really weird position. For the first time in my life, I find that I'm making the same argument as the IMF. <laughs> so it can't be that radical. <laughs> and even members of the Bocconi School have started to defect. Most importantly, Parotti's paper, The Austerity Myth, which opens the door for the IMF to do systematic challenges to this work and to undermine it point by point by point. When the October 2012 World Economic Outlook came out and showed that there were negative multipliers of 1.5 to 1.7, meaning for every dollar you cut in public spending, you're getting a loss of 1.5 to 1.7, kind of explains why you're getting this type of reaction function. It's time to stop the madness. Because you're getting more debt, not less. And the dying members of this was the attempt to paint the Baltics and their friends. It's the austerity success story. So I, I came up with my own little acronym, because there's been pigs and there's been gypsies. 
So I wanted the Rebel Alliance and they try and blow up the Death Star. So the Rebel Alliance is Romania, Estonia, Bulgaria, Latvia and Lithuania. And here's the weird thing about this. Nobody ever asked why they had to be so austere in the first place. Because nobody paid attention to Eastern European <coughs> banking circuits back in 2009. And this is the most disgusting story of all. So back in 2000, when you're looking at the Euro coming in, you look east of either Swedish or German bank, and you see a lot of undervalued assets. Why? Because they're going to be in the Euro one day. But just now, they've got these ridiculous currencies called lats and goats and God knows what else. So why don't we just take some dollars or whatever and buy these things? Well, the people running these countries, having now run away from the Russians, usually sensible, uh, are not exactly people who like big states. In fact, they've got a thoroughly libertarian bent to them. So they didn't mind foreigners coming in and saying, open up, liberalise, privatise, sell this, sell that. Well, you sell as your banking sector. Problem. How much do you want? And those countries sold between 80 and 100% of their banking assets to foreigners. Go back to Alan Greenspan's freakout moment. There's a liquidity crunch. You're a Swedish bank. Your interbank markets have frozen up. You need liquidity. Where do you get it? Why not look east? After all, you own those banks. So you threatened to take all the money out of Eastern Europe because you de facto privatised your money supplies. Oh, shit. Suddenly the libertarians said, you can't do that, because if you do, we just create our economy. And they said, my money, screw you. So at that point, the European Commission intervenes, and they come up with something called the Vienna Agreements. And the Vienna Agreements, which foreshadowed all the stuff that's gone on in the south of Europe since then, worked like this. The senior bondholders of Swedish banks will be protected, because you will guarantee the balance sheets of the local banks by taking a 30% cut for pensioners. That's what happened. That's a bait and switch. That is disgraceful. And that's what the EU signed up to, and they generalised right around the world. Now, Reinhard Rogoff, Excelgate, that one blows up. That's a blip, that's not important. It's really the expansion of fiscal consolidation stuff would be important in the European story. And it has produced 25% permanent unemployment and systemic imbalances in a currency union that probably shouldn't exist. How do we get out of this? If you can't inflate, and you can't devalue, and you don't want to blow up, and austerity, simply deflating doesn't work, there's two others. The first one is financial repression, and here's how this is going to work. Already you see what's called bond market repatriation. Spanish banks are getting filled with Spanish bonds, creating this sovereign bank link that people worry about. But you can turn a, a, virtue, a pain into a virtue if you try hard enough. So why not just repatriate all the bonds? And then we're going to say in the Spanish case, we're going to take all those bonds that basically aren't doing anything in banking systems and so on, and we're going to say nuevo bonos, and you're going to reissue those bonds, and you're going to give them a longer maturity, and you're going to drop the coupon on them, and you're going to get a much more accommodative Draghi-like central bank, and you're going to run a positive inflation rate, thereby creating real and negative real rates on those bonds and eating them away with a liquidation tax. Now, how are we going to do this? Because this is exactly what Britain and America did after World War II. Within 10 years, they got rid of 40% of their debt. It's astonishingly effective. And the only problem is, who does it hurt? It hurts creditors and favours debtors. Why are we surprised the creditor always pays? This is just the least painful way of doing it. And the other way you're going to do it, when you have the horribly skewed income distributions of the West, you can try and put the poo on the bottom of the income distribution, they don't have any bloody money. So they can't pay. And if you cut all their services, they might come along and bomb their house down. So you've got a bit of a problem. 
So what do you do? You look for the people who have got the money. Who was sitting in Congress getting his arse felt yesterday? The guy who now runs Apple. Why are we suddenly worried about Ireland's corporation tax rate in the way we weren't before? Because it's depriving us of revenue. Google, I believe, is getting slapped around the House of Commons as we speak. We're going after the corporates. Now, it's not to get them to pay more tax, it's to get them to disgorge the cash back into the real economy and get growth going again. One way or another, they're going to stop their capital strike. So that's another way you're going to do it. And you can think of this in a way as payback for the bailouts to start it all. After all, if the creditor pays, they're the ones who got all the goddamn credit. And then there's one more thing you can do. And the lesson, I think, is clear. It's we've been running a giant natural experiment in austerity politics for the past five years and the results are in. The United States this year will have 3% deficit on 3% growth despite the sequester. Because it hasn't cut. The sequester is nothing. It's a pimple on the backside. Forget about it. It's a theatre, a sideshow. They didn't do anything. Britain didn't have to do what it did. But it chose to. It's now going to have a 7% deficit and you haven't seen any growth in five years. And the periphery of Europe, which gets forecast of having 4% deficit every year for the past four years and is still stuck at 10, and it will continue to be so, is undergoing an economic nightmare of 25% unemployment and 30% low GDP drops. How long do you think you can sustain that crap for? It's ridiculous. So we've got the results, and the result is clear. It's not you have to choose between the skill and characters of austerity and stimulus. Just go back to Hippocrates. First, do no harm. All the Americans did was not harm themselves. And a really interesting thing closing to think about this is, why is it when we talk about the pathologies of government intervention, we only talk about pathologies on the spending side? We refuse to see cuts as interventions, but they are. And given that states have raised taxes and spent taxes and been mutually imbricated with markets since their very inception, and constitute, up in some cases, close to half of GDP. How could you expect to cut this stuff and not have it hurt? But we did, because we believe some rather silly ideas that go all the way back to the Scottish Enlightenment and are just recycled time and time again, every time there's a debt crisis. And it's bollocks. Thank you. So to go back to my opening point, write about things that piss you off. That really pisses me off. Okay, um, so that's the first meet. I think I ever chaired a, a meeting where the final statement was the word box. So, um, and, well, I've heard it all before, of course. So, um, so questions. Um, just a couple of notes about questions. First of all, I don't... I'm, uh, I don't have any clever ordering system for, for sorting out who gets to ask a question. It's more or less random, so don't get upset. Second, questions please, not soliloquies, because Mark does that. He's there to give us his talk. You're here to ask questions. Um, and we've got until about 8 o'clock, and then afterwards we'll, uh, we'll have some time for fireworks and signing them. Okay, so... More importantly, going to the pub. <laughs> All of us? Jonathan's paying. <laughs> one, one thing for, that you might be interested in knowing, if you're aware that Scot Scottish people have a reputation for parsimony, within England, Yorkshire people have a reputation that's more or less at the same level. And I'm from Yorkshire, so... Um, 
between the two of us, you know, neither. Not getting a drink. Okay, questions. One here. I'll take them three at a time. So one here, one at the back. Oh, we have two. Let's have a third. Is it up the back? Yeah, that's it. Um, so, or is it third? Okay, go ahead. What, what, what's this random three thing? There's no one what's My name is Mike. I'm a foreign student. Um, clearly, um, our thinking is um, well is affected by the use of language, and um, those who propose um, austerity have a very simple metaphor. They they say we we need to tighten our belt. And do you think that um, well the failure to implement uh, Keynesian policies is also due to the fact that we do not have such a simplistic uh, metaphor, and, and do you have one that one could use to, to make a more sensible policy? I'm going to take this one first, then I'll go to the second one, if you don't mind, so we'll just do it that way. Um, yeah, well, okay, the first one is it does require joined up thinking, right? So you get people like Len Hubbard, who was on the CEA with Bush, uh, right into the FT and doing a big piece in 2010 about how, well, when the Hubbard family spends too much, we stop spending. And, you know, we have a look at whether we need cable TV or not. And I remember looking at that and going, Harvard professor of economics doing without cable, bloody all those things. But more importantly, you do have to get past this and simply say, well, you know, states are not at all like families, right? I mean, this is completely crazy, you know. I don't get to import people into my family and tax their children three generations down the line, right? There's no secondary market in Mark Blythe debt, right? I don't have aircraft carriers. The United States does it. I mean, this shit might actually matter, you know? So, you know, there are ways of explaining. I just did see you all laugh. You've got it. It's obvious nonsense, right? Now, why is it that, you know, politicians refuse to call it nonsense? Well, part of it is because they're kind of still enthralled to the, if you will, the, I love David Priestland's term for this, the merchant worldview, which has so dominated us for the past 30 years. And to simply get out and just say, honestly, much of this is complete nonsense. Think about it for five seconds. It's actually quite easy to do, but there seems to be a little hesitance to do it. It's simple, you know, well, you should be tightening your belt. Well, these are in a simple response, right? Anytime you hear that, just say the following. I'm in favor of tightening belts the minute we're all wearing the same pants. And we are farther from wearing the same common pants than we've been since the 1920s. So exactly whose pants are getting tightened? Right? That's the question that needs to be asked. So there are many ways we can effectively argue against this. And it should be done. The big question for those of you, for example, who are Labour Party members is why the hell are we doing it? Good time. Speaker. Hello, hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, cool. um, yeah, basically, so one of the common criticisms against austerity um, is that we're not getting rid of austerity. It's in, based on the definition of austerity, it's about tax rises as well as cuts. Um, but based on what you're saying, would you, would you say it's fair to say that austerity, which has been described as a, a cover for liber uh, neoliberal ideology, is in fact neoliberal ideology itself? Is that what you're sort of... Yeah. In, in short, yes. Right? But it's more than that, because it is, it's just a really serious, when I say it's a neuralgia, right? I mean, it, it's a nerve pain. It's this thing that inexplicably flares up, and we sort of like react to it autonomically, rather than thinking about it. And you've got all this nonsense about household debt being the same and all the rest of it. So, I mean, we just, you just need to think through it a little bit. 
In terms of the real estate and not real estate and stuff, look, when you basically lose 40% of your tax revenue in a year, this is what happened in Britain, right? You lost 40% of your tax receipts in one bloody year in 2008. Of course you're going to blow a hole in your deficit the size of an aircraft carrier. Of course this is going to add to your debt when you then have a recession. So what should you do? Should you compensate initially? Yes. Should you add a lot of liquidity? Yes. You did some of that. But then when you start cutting on top of that, it's utterly self-defeating. Or indeed raising taxes in the middle of it. Allow it to balloon out and then let it recover as the economy recovers. The Americans did this and look what's happened. They've not just stabilised their deficit, they're on track to reducing their debt. They're doing so faster than any other economy in the G20 because they didn't cut. It's mind-bogglingly simple. Um, Mark, uh, Robert Wade, uh, Mark, to what extent do you think that this whole um, austerity project since 2008 um, is being driven by um, the owners and managers of capital who have seized on the opportunity uh, presented by the crisis to um, try and bring down wages um, in Europe, in North America, um, in the face of competition from uh, China, from other parts of the developing world. They, in other words, to what extent do they see a kind of mission um, to uh, make Europe and North America competitive again mm -hmm. um, and have been talking up austerity and um, fiscal expansionism and so on and so on as a kind of screen uh, to give legitimacy to this project, which is to bring down wages. Um, I actually don't think that's the case because I don't think they're that well organized. Right? <laughs> and here's my example for this, right? If you look at Colin, Colin Crouch wrote a wonderful book, Strange on Death and Neoliberalism, and I did a review of it, and you know, you've got to have a point of critique rather than just saying it's absolutely fabulous. And I did have one, and it's the following. Um, back in, he said, you know, this is Colin Crouch. Colin Crouch, yeah. It's a great book, right? But he says, you know, who's behind this whole project of neoliberalism? Well, it's global finance, right? And I'm always struck by something I read once by a guy called Bill Janeway. He said, in 1977, J.P. Morgan was a limited partnership in New York with 250 employees from top to bottom. Did they sit down at some point and say, let's take over the world? <laughs> right? Is there a, you know, where was the planning meeting for the Politburo of capitalism? Right? I mean, this stuff, they all compete. I mean, think about this one, right? The people, who are, the people who are employing Chinese workers are the same American firms. So it would be kind of mental to basically try and force consumers in America who buy the stuff that your firm makes to have less wages to compete with the other people you employ in the same firm. I mean, that's zero-sum against itself to a catastrophic level. So, I mean, the people that I talk to out there in the markets, it's a much simpler story. We don't want to pay for the mess. It's really that simple. We will talk up a story because we don't want to be the ones that pay for the bailouts that reinsure their assets. It's a much simpler story. And many of them are painfully aware of the fact that they let the income distribution skew get so bad. People in finance are not stupid. They understand that we let it get so bad. Now, they don't want to solve it by giving up their dollars, right? They don't want higher taxes on that. But they're aware of the fact that we have an acute underconsumption problem. And I hear people say this all the time to me. Hedge fund managers know this for Christ's sake. So I don't buy that story because it's too organized. 
capitalism is just a disorganized system, too much of a disorganized system to have that degree of coherence, which is why I've never bought those types of arguments fully. I think there are elements of capitalism that think that way, but it's just too much to assume that it's a plan in that sense. But then again, I'm just a naive American. And those that have capital don't want to give up their capital, but that redistribution, that's the only way we can get the, the money flowing back into the system. I mean, how can we solve that? That's it. You're going to do financial repression, which is a redistributionary mechanism. And you, well, got, first of all, they've got the alternative. I mean, basically, you've got so much crap debt, particularly in places like Spain, that the only way you're going to get out of this is by doing some kind of debt neutralization. And even if that means basically running a very accommodative policy with a central bank, hiding a bit here or there, reassume the bonds. And as you do that and you run negative real rates, you can effectively borrow against it. And then you can do more infrastructure, more spending, whatever. There's going to be a whole combination of things that's used. Now, I'm not saying this is easy and it's politically fraught, but there is an alternative. It's called, let's try another five years of austerity. And that's just not going to hold. Look at the share of centre party votes in Europe. It's collapsed. Bepi Grillo is round one. You don't want to see what round two is going to produce. So even the Commission is now coming out going, uh, you know, policies to work, they kind of need like the minimum of democratic legitimacy and support. Maybe we kind of this one up. Okay, let's try this one again. But it's a bit like, you know, Osborne. Osborne is not a stupid person. He knows this isn't working, but he's rhetorically boxed himself into such an extent that he's got no room to go. Now the policy suggested of the Conservatives is that everybody in Britain has their own personal Fanny and Freddie. I mean, that's borderline insanity. I mean, what is this? Let's everyone have a housing bubble. Go on, have your own one. Knock <laughs> yourself out. There you go. Because he's got nowhere else to go, because he'd either have to turn around in Parliament and say, alright lads, here's the deal. You know the austerity stuff I've been doing for the past four years? Turns out it's total bollocks. I'm really sorry, let's start again, right? That never happens. So you end up going down that road, and it's going to be a fraught road, it's going to take five or more years to even sort of like tip us out, particularly for Southern Europe. But it's got to happen, because the alternative is even worse. It's a bit like what, what uh, Churchill said about the Americans. The Americans will always do the right thing once they've exhausted every other alternative. In the middle. With the current process of having a couple of years of austerity, do you not think that process increases efficiencies within countries, within Europe, the UK, and the US? And then once you have an injection of investment, you actually end up using the capital a bit more effectively. So the current process that we're going through is actually the right process. We first do the cutting and then people like yourselves and now the person changing its thoughts and then now having the investment put back into the right process and that's actually what's happening. There's absolutely no evidence that that's the case. That's just it. There's no evidence. If there's an evidence-based guy, right? If you actually show me evidence that that works, I totally do it. But there's no evidence. All you do is you shrink GDP in the same constant stock of debt gets bigger. And you're basically hollow. Here's the real problem with this stuff, right? And it really is, forget Keynesian economics the way you learned it in the class, right? Go read the general theory. What is it that he really worries about? Negative productivity growth. So if you've got five years where you don't replace your capital stock, you don't increase uh, your uh, skills, you let things atrophy, your GDP track does this. So you're digging yourself a hole simply by doing nothing. Now, if you compound that by cutting at the same time, you've got all that distance to get back up, to get back to where you started. 
So the whole structural reform agenda, as it's called, which you're alluding to, is a bit like the following. I know you've been in a car crash. I know you're bleeding to death. I know I've applied leeches. But five years from now, that arm of yours is going to be awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's really the argument. It's, there's no evidence that five years from now you'll be alive. Don't worry about your arm. In the front here first. Yeah. Uh, I'll take the example of Greece, uh, mainly because it's the most devastating example of how uh, austerity can work. And uh, secondly, because I'm from Greece. I'm honest now. Uh, so, uh, you know the figures better than me. We used to have 10% uh, unemployment six years ago. Now we have 30 and 55% to the young ages, those below 27. Uh, we used to have, a, um, exactly now we have a cumulative recession of 25%. And the worst of all, we used to have a neo-Nazis party of 0.001%, and that was something like 10%. More. And uh, also, we're supposed to be the lazy ones of Europe, whereas the average Greek right now works 60, 120 more hours than the average German per year. So It's all in the book, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the only thing that is uh, better is uh, the exports, mainly because the GDP is so down. Uh, so, my question is a bit of cliché. Let's suppose that you were the financial minister of Greece right now, mm -hmm. and you heard you had the prisoner's dilemma, either you implement a totally irrational mm -hmm. uh, and unsuccessful policy, or uh, you're out of the game, you're out of the markets, and you have to face uh, a problem right now that society cannot deal with. What, yeah. do, what do you do? All right, the whole thing about being out of the markets, um, is anybody old enough to remember something called the GKO bond? The Russians did this in 96. Do you remember what the coupon in the bond was? 40% in 12 months. 40% in 12 months. When your reinsurance was a contract on the ruble and forward contract, right? This was the stupidest goddamn financial instrument the world had ever seen because the Russian government had no taxes. We bought boatloads of them. We bought them by the hundreds of billions. And then the Russians did what the Russians do best. A year later they went and defaulted. They were back in the markets within three years. Markets have no memories. They really don't. Greece's problem is actually different. And the real lesson of this is stop aggregating countries into data sets. Because the United States will never go bust. The day the United States cannot roll over its debt in the secondary markets, you can safely rest assured that every other sovereign alternative has been invaded by the Klingon Empire. It's that simple. We have aircraft carriers. That counts. Greece doesn't. But Greece's problem is even worse, and this is the real tragedy of it. So you come out of the worst civil war in modern European history into an unstable political settlement. That ebbs and flows basically with very, very low growth and incredible levels of corruption all the way through the 70s. The colonel step in and make it even worse. And then basically Europe finally says we've got to do something about this shit. So you basically start putting in capital flows, structural funds, advice, all the rest of it. And you basically end up with a party system, which is two families, and it really was two families in one case. And you put the Papandreou guys and they recognise that you have to kind of pump up domestic demand because you've got incredible poverty in the country for one thing. Huge net out-migration. Out Once you get outside of Athens, there's nobody in the bloody country. 
And you've got hardly any industry. If I get the shipping stuff, that's all nonsense. It's just reissued flags, essentially. So what is it you actually make? Well, nothing. So what's been happening for the past 20 years is the capital flows come in, and you jump it into the state treasury, and you issue debt on the back of that, and you take turns each election stealing the money. The critique of this is true. It was a patently unsustainable model, but it was a patently unsustainable model for 50 years. It's a long time to be unsustainable. And people forgot what it was actually like underneath the whole thing. Portugal is another example. Portugal used to make things like footwear. And Asian competition absolutely clobbered them. They have nothing left to export. What does Greece actually export? It doesn't have anything to export. So if you exit the euro and you do a massive devaluation and bring in a new drachma, you're going to have hyperinflation through your imports in a matter of months. So you need to do capital controls and then you add this and add this and add the next thing. You have no good choices. It's a horrible situation to be in, but that's what it is. Now, what you need are fiscal transfers, solidarity, all the rest of it. We don't have that. We have moral hazard. We have lies about you guys not doing any work. So we're going to have a mess trying to fix this. But the point about aggregation, I think, is the most important one. Everybody's debt story is different. And if you think you can just get to some magic figure of 90% or whatever, and that tells you something about the world, this is nonsense. The US has aircraft carriers. It matters. Germany makes BMW. That matters. China is on the hook for every T-bill the Americans make. That matters. And it all matters in how you deal with and treat debt going forward. There are no simple stories about this. And I'm really sorry for Greece because it has no good options. But it's been a 50-year tragedy in the making. You didn't like that answer, did you? At <laughs> <laughs> uh, the very back, this man was very signed up for uh, yeah, uh, you said you're an evidence-based guy, so I'm going to take you up on that. Um, I do agree with you on the short term that like, austerity-based policies do not uh, promote growth at all, uh, contrary to what Alcina says. But I think there's like some long-run uh, things that like, closely intertwine with what you said uh, that still puzzle me. One, if you look at uh, the uh, debt-to-GDP ratio in the G20 economies, that has been rising since 1975, almost constantly. <coughs> We've been like, you know, talking about... Totally true, totally true. Give, give me a minute, okay? No, no, okay. I, I was just agreeing with you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Calm down. It's all right. It's okay. You're going to get Do you agree with me on that? that this is a problem? Because I think in the long run, and this leads to another thing, you said, like, you know, Britain, they can, like, sort of like, take on debt, and then you have economic growth, and then you get back. Mm-hmm. Economic growth since then has, like, um, is, like, half of what it used to be before. And even though there's this whole excellent get around and rocket, Still, the new data from London, it still says that uh, countries with debt to GDP over 90% have average uh, growth of 2.2, and under 30% it's 4.2. So it's up only about half. So that still says that uh, high debt to GDP ratio poses significant problems. And uh, if you look at this whole Keynesian cycle, I mean, deficit spending is easy, right? But like building up surpluses, that poses a significant problem because it either means tax increases or spending cuts, and no politician is willing to do that. If no politician is willing to do that, you're all... You're okay, all you stop all agree with it. The problem with Keynesian economics has never been the economics, it's been the politics. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm in total agreement with this. But there are examples, there are examples where we have actually paid back debt. Do you know who the United States' best Keynesian president was? Eisenhower. What was the top marginal rate of taxation under Eisenhower? 91%. 87 with tax relief, and he enforced it. The guy who ran his central bank was McChesney Martin, taking the punch bowl away just as the party starts to get going. 
They want to know aspect bubbles. Each act up interest rates whenever you thought it was going to become a problem. So there are ways of doing this. You just have to want to do it. And politicians are not incentivized to do it in the good times. That's absolutely true. However, even though Gordon Brown gets pelters for what he did in his administration when he was Prime Minister, from 97 until 2002, the UK was reducing its debt. Larry Summers from 19, 1994 until 1999 was reducing its debt. So we have positive examples. Number two, in terms of the latest data showing this, I mean, come on, it's all based on crap data and it's totally cooked. Arjun uh, Jaryev, his paper that now shows that when you do it in a certain technique, you end up with a hyperconvexity whereby you end up with the bottom growing slowly, the middle being worse, and then when you get above 100%, you actually grow faster. So I don't know what to believe. You can make econometric say whatever you want, depending on the inputs that you put into the model and the quality of the data. So I don't think that solves anything in terms of it. So I'm entirely in agreement with the whole process of the problem is that they talk you meant to actually do something to build up a surplus. The Swedes successfully did it when they came back in 1994, they ran a surplus for nearly nine years. But you can't all run a surplus at once. And to try to do so is economic nonsense. So we have to be careful and calibrated on this. I'm not actually a mad, wild-eyed Keynesian. Seriously, hypocritic economics. Just don't harm yourself would be a good start. So I agree with some of you, but my faith in econometrics is zero. Uh, this gentleman here first. Um, going back to Greece, because I've gone there from holidays in three weeks' time to copy of your book. And um, while I agree with your analysis, do you think there's a case for the rest of Europe to turn around and tell Germany to stop moralizing about Greece and remind them about the Marshall Plan? Aye, that would be one thing you could do. Um, another, another one is this, uh, the whole sort of, like, the, the, the March Sheets of Desire has a really good stuff on this. Now, uh, if you go back to the Adenauer period, it was a period of relatively high inflation. <laughs> the, the wrong history is completely ignored. The hyperinflation of 1923 was over by 1924 after eight months of the introduction of the rental market. The entire point of it was to screw the French over reparations. It worked. They got the Dawes plan in a seniority swap that saw capital fly from the United States to stabilize the German economy. None of this is there in the story that we tell and in the moral story. But I understand also why the Germans do it, because they're a terrible position, because they're not... Those of you who have done IR will remember this thing called hegemonic stability theory, right? public goods provision, etc. The Germans aren't big enough to be a hegemon. But they're too, they're too big to be a normal country, they're too export dependent, but they're not big enough to bail the system they've created. Right, so if Eurozone GDP is more or less equivalent to what an aggregate the United States is, its bank assets the GDPs three times, so you're talking about $45 trillion of liabilities. There's no goddamn way the German economy can deal with that, but it actually hits the fan. So they will moralize and they will say various things to both justify their political position, but also because they, they, they can't fix the problem on their own. And the only way you can fix the problem is if you actually turn the ECB into a proper central bank and do real lender of last resort function. But that would be to run the printing presses. And if you were to do that, that runs smack bang into your moral story that you said that you will never do. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place. So just reminding them the Marshall Plan's a good start, but it's probably going to be insufficient. Gentlemen, here. And then at the back. Um, I believe I've seen that the German, just as sort of a common, I believe, the German had a debt wipe down of 50% in 1930. Yes, very important. Which actually helped them, which of course. I think the Greeks should keep reminding the Germans of that. But my question is, 
I kind of think analysis is persuasive and the politics is attractive and so on. But I'm surprised in the list of options that you don't have investment there. And I'm conscious here of China. In, in 2008, when they were throwing their factory workers out of uh, jobs, they rioted and, and they burned down in terms um, a large number of uh, offices. And as a result, or partly as a result, the Chinese government has run a very investment-driven economy. And they're now trying to shift it to a consumption-driven economy. Do you think that that, and why is investment boom, mm-hmm. given that interest rates are where they are? So everybody from Vince Cable through to Martin Wolf is arguing for that. Why aren't you? Uh, in part because everybody else is already arguing for that. So what I'm trying to do is to show the other dynamics that's going on. Right? So the whole point of putting banking front and centre really plays down the important role in institutional differences. So that could be in the story, it's an important part of the story, but I really am highlighting what I think the bits that are sort of like not being said enough, not being seen enough. If you can borrow at negative real rates and you can invest in infrastructure, particularly in a place like Britain, you should absolutely do it. It's so bloody obvious. My goodness, every time I come back here, I'm just surprised you still haven't mastered complex technologies like windows that shut, right? showers that aren't like babies peeing on your head. There's <laughs> quite a bit of infrastructure on a basic level this place to do with like plumbing, you know, heating. I mean, it's not high tech stuff we're talking here. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, we should completely do this. I mean, my God, the train system is still a basket case. I mean, it's really, it's beyond embarrassing. So, yes, you can do a lot of that stuff. And you should do a lot of that stuff, and it's productivity enhancing in the long run. So I'm entirely in agreement. It's exactly what should be up there. But because that's sort of like such a bellwether in a sense, and what I want to do, particularly when I go, I give these talks to, you know, I was at uh, Don's bookshop, and had a lot of people from the city of London come over. And basically, I'm trying to scare them. Right? You know the Australia Put's not going to pay out for you, guys. So here's the deal. Which of these two shitty options do you want first? And that's why I'm telling the story the way I am. But the important role for government is, is exactly long-term social investment. Now, sorry to go on a wee bit, but there's, a, there's a, an interesting story here which I think is worth telling. Um, so if you go back a couple of years ago when uh, there was Fukushima, the Germans said that they were going to take out nuclear power. And when you do that, you become even more dependent on Russian gas. Now, why on earth would you want to do that? I mean, they've never turned off the taps, but it basically creates a, a large strategic vulnerability. Well, imagine that basically you've got the best engineers in the world, which they do. And you have a long tradition of big firms cooperating together, but nonetheless competing. And you've figured out there is this thing out there called carbon, and it is a problem. And the whole world is going to buy whoever invents green tech. So you basically turn off the electricity from nuclear, and you basically give yourself 20 years to invent green tech. And if you get it, you will clean up for the next 100. Now, what's stopping that? Imagine having such an aversion to debt that having created those conditions, you're unable to create the loss-leading technologies that would require massive government spending on unknown and untestable technologies in order to seed the industry. Why do we have triple sevens? Because we have B-52s. Why do we have Google? Because DARPA invented TCPIP. If you don't generate the Keynesian waste that the dumb beetle of entrepreneurship crawls all over, you're never going to get anywhere. So if you're so terrified of debt and you think that debt and investment are the same thing, you're really screwing yourself in the long run. 
And that's the position that the debt panic has got us to. We don't even recognise the difference between investment and debt. And that's utterly pathological from a capitalist point of view. Um, you said earlier that Germany couldn't stem proper QE, so how can we pay for it and who should pay for it? Well, that's what I'm saying, you can't. Germany cannot pay for it, right? This is an right? That's You just can't do it. You cannot do it. So here's the problem, though. When you build a set of institutions that are monetary, and the people doing it say, well, we'll worry about the fiscal side later, you know. We'll have this currency that'll cause convergence and step at a time around. And then you tell yourself this other narrative that, like, well, Europe always advances in moments of crisis, right? Well, unfortunately, what the currency did was to bring massive divergence in everything that was covered up by capital flows. And the whole narrative that Europe advances in the crisis, when you actually get into it, Craig Parsons has got a good paper on this, it's bollocks. It's simply not true. There are moments of crisis when you get these temporary little fixes in existing institutions. Nobody has ever created an entire set of fiscal institutions across a continent that we're going to agree upon that has asymmetric deficit surplus targets and Jordan bends and built into it. How on earth is that going to work? Is the whole world going to run a bloody surplus? This is utter madness. How is that going to fit economies as diverse as the Finns and Spain? This is utter garbage. So Germany's got itself as a set between a rock and a hard place. So here is my suggestion. Here's how you're going to fix this. You're going to leave the euro. Because if Germany leaves the euro, it has a real exchange rate appreciation of about 30%. Some of those BMWs become much more expensive. And your price elasticity will protect it to a certain extent, but what it means is you no longer have an undervalued exchange rate, which is what the euro gives you. It's actually a real effective exchange rate. You're going to pay what it costs. Now, because of that, you'll be able to export less abroad. But what that means is you have 100 million Germans. You have a big-ass market, and you don't spend enough. So you're going to have to turn around and do some domestic demand changes. And you're going to have to sell stuff to your own people and change your export profile. And when you do that, your real effective exchange rate will go down, and then you can come back and join the party and become a consumption hub, and everybody will love you again. Unfortunately, that's even less politically likely than me becoming the next pope. But it would be nice if it happened. Not me being the pope, but the other side. Right. question. Is it either... Greece becoming more German, Germany becoming more Greece in a way, enough to offend any Greek people. It's just somebody must have changed their model, apparently. But, but this is the thing, we're, we're obsessed with convergence, optimization, people becoming the same thing. These are just completely different things. I mean, it's you know, when people say, like, well, the United States is running a danger of becoming Greece, it's like, no, it's not. It's not a aircraft carrier, for I keep mentioning it, but it's true and it's important. So, you know, Germany can't become, it's impossible. But you also have to start telling the truth about what you've actually done, right? So why are you so damn competitive? Because you haven't given your workers a real wage increase in 10 years. You have a negative real wage growth. The French hate you for a reason. They also held the line on wages, right? But their wages actually stayed neutral. They haven't had a wage increase. You actually deflated. You pay your workers less today than you did 10 years ago. And they make even better stuff. It's just unfair to everybody else. <laughs> So we can't become new. Back in 1999, Martin Wolf, right, said a really brilliant. He said, when you join the euro, you're making a one-way bet that your industry can be as competitive as Germany's. Good luck. <laughs> I think we found out that everybody else's luck has just run out. Maybe time for one more. Thanks. Is there a future for the EU? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Here's how I describe it in the book. The EU works as an incomplete contract 
Right? You don't try and specify everything ahead of time. You don't write all the rules. You don't exactly see all the problems. And because of that, you can negotiate it. It's robust. So basically, you know, if Serbia happens in the middle of the 90s, that's a bad thing. Admittedly, you don't do anything until the Americans sort it out for you, which is usual. But nonetheless, put that to one side. You can roll with the punches because you can deal with contingencies, you can deal with the unexpected. And in all seriousness, the political project has been an astonishing success and is incredibly valuable. Because if you'd said at the end of the Cold War, you'd be able to extend the rule of law and democracy and the extension of civil society all the way to the Russian border, you would have got a very good set of odds on that one not coming true. And yet, that was managed, and with a few notable exceptions, it definitely worked, right? Now, here's the monetary equivalent. Let's imagine that we write a complete contract for all possible state contingencies of the world going forward. Well, any proper economist will tell you that's bollocks, you can't do that, can you? You can't do that. Well, you might. Imagine you did the following. So you don't know what the parameter space of the future looks like. You don't know how far out the tails go. You don't know what the central tendency is. You don't know what's going to happen. So imagine you have a set of rules. So everybody runs a surplus, or at least everybody has a small deficit. And everybody has low inflation. And everybody has a good debt to GDP. So nobody breaks the rules. What you're doing is you're narrowing the parameter space of the possible outcomes that can happen in the future. You're trying to forward program the arguable for time. The epistemic hubris involved in this is unbelievable. You don't have to be a Hayekian to understand that that's patent nonsense. And it's going to be undermined and gamed by actors the minute that you try it. And there's this astonishing myopia that the same people who will argue you can't do financial regulation because it will be gamed out precisely because of our argument somehow think you can do it with entire macroeconomies. I don't know how that happens, but it happens. And on that basis, it's pants. It can't work. But if you move to a more flexible system, an incomplete contract, that negotiates, that doesn't see every possible interaction as moral hazard and rent-seeking, that actually has a belief in solidarity, that has a belief that Europe itself is a project worth saving rather than simply debts worth collecting, then it's got a chance. But once you've painted the Greeks the way they've been painted, once you've castigated the South and celebrated the North, once you've argued you can have a 6% surplus but never more than a 3% deficit, I don't see how you get that political thing back on track. And what we've got is everybody's trying to leave everybody else. So the Brits are trying to leave the EU. The Scots are trying to leave the Brits. The Catalans are trying to leave Spain. And I'm trying to leave my cat. It's not looking good, particularly for my cat. Okay, thank you very much. So there we have it. Uh, austerity, it's bollocks. Um, <laughs>